This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins, weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. Well, a highlight of 2021 for me is I got to interview one of the all-time great broadcasters in NHL history. He retired in October of 2020. He is an incredible play-by-play voice, an incredible storyteller, Doc Emmerich. Excellent, and it's great to talk to you and the folks in Edmonton and Alberta. The first time I ever met Grace Sutter was at the Northlands Coliseum. She came over to watch the Twins play when I was toddling around with the Philadelphia Flyers in the 80s. And I always enjoyed trips to Edmonton, even though sometimes I was chilly. Yeah, <laughs> just sometimes, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're used to that. Hey, I, I, I want to I ask you about your trips to Edmonton, but I, I have to admit, I, I was a little, maybe not nervous, but apprehensive thinking, okay, do I just call you Doc? Should I call That's... you Mike? Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> no, my wife calls me Mike because she knew me before I had the doctorate. You call me whatever you want to. No, it, it's it's totally fine. Who started calling you Doc? When did it actually stick? Well, I, I finished the doctorate in 1976 while I was riding buses in the IHL with the Port Huron flags. And uh, then I moved on about a year later to the Flyers' top farm team in Portland, Maine. And the president of the team, Ed Anderson, uh, who still lives back in Maine now, um, uh, started doing that. And I guess it just caught on with other people then, too. But that, uh, that's where it started. It's not a very creative nickname at all. Um, and the folks at Bowling Green just sort of look on mystified by it all. And my, my one uh, advisor, one of my advisors in my doctoral dissertation said, you're not going to go teach somewhere. You're just going to be some hockey puck the rest of your life. And I, I guess I disappointed him. Uh, well, yeah. Have you been in touch with him since? <laughs> no, his, his daughter went on to be a writer for married with children and, uh, and a producer of the show. So she had a pretty good successful career of her own, but no, I never did. Never did hear back from him. <laughs> All right. Well, man, like we're a minute in and we've already worked in an Al Bundy reference somehow, which is pretty cool. <laughs> so so I, I, I got to ask you this. Uh, I Obviously, you know, I, I've heard you call games. I've read about you. I've, I've heard other interviews that you've done. But I wonder if you can take me way back to before you were Doc, uh, a, a little Mike Emmerich. Uh, like, were you a sports-oriented kid and if so what were your sports passions when you were growing up it was baseball uh strictly that uh because in our rural part of indiana were it not for some wonderful canadians named ken elliott and colin lister who brought hockey to fort wayne and brought players like john ferguson and um con madigan and others from Western Canada, because that's uh, that was the area that they tended to recruit from to bring players all the way from Western Canada into Fort Wayne. 
uh, we would not have had a team. Now, in 1960, uh, when hockey started to get some exposure nationwide in the United States, not only because of the U.S. Olympic gold medal team, um, but also shortly thereafter, CBS started to broadcast Saturday afternoon games. And uh, so I could see those. And, and we had our team in Fort Wayne in the IHL in 1952 when they opened a place called the Coliseum that still has the Fort Wayne Comets team spelled with a K to this day. And so as a result, uh, I got a chance to see my first live game in, in uh, the winter in December of 1960. And like you and probably so many other people, um, uh, I got hooked when I saw the first game. And uh, then that was my passion. Before that was baseball, but then it became hockey. And I knew I wasn't going to be an athlete of any kind uh, growing up in rural Indiana. So um, I turned to broadcasting, and that was my ambition from the time I was nine. No, well, that's interesting. So, rural Indiana. I, I, I mean, I, I, I might have guessed you were a, a, a basketball fanatic, and you had some Hoosiers type story about your school playing against some big school <laughs> and winning. A yeah, basketball. well, no, it happened all the time, and our our town was six hundred. It was about the size of legendary Hickory. Uh, we had a situation in quotes with the coach. The coach was fired. And the students in the upper six grades of our one building, and it was it was one through 12, grades one through 12, and the students in the upper six grades walked out, and it made the Indianapolis news that night. And two days later, the coach was rehired, and this is in the middle of the year. And the fact that the coach and the trustee who fired him owned the only two restaurants in town made the story just even juicier. But that was life in small town Indiana. The only, there were only 13 celebrities in town, but they were celebrities. And that was the coach and the 12 members of the varsity team. And we did have to play the county seat team a couple of times in showdowns in the sectional tournament, very much like Hickory did, but we didn't win them. Well, I hope those were two really good restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> well, they they specialized in burgers and fries at noon and scrambled eggs and bacon in the morning. It was rural Indiana. Yeah, I bet. It sounds great. That's awesome. Thanks for sharing that. Uh, do, do you remember the first hockey game you called, the first time you did play-by-play -play for hockey? Yes, it was uh, at the Toledo Sports Arena in Toledo, Ohio. Um, and it was a game between the uh, Toledo Blades and the Port Huron Flags in the IHL. And at that time, now I, I should discount that that would be taking aside the two years that I spent. I got to do the second period of the, of the Bowling Green games. So if I were to count that, it would be the second period of a game between Bowling Green and Ryerson College. Uh, in the fall of 1971, but if it was a pro game, uh, it would be that. And Bob McCammon, who later coached Philadelphia and coached Vancouver, was the coach of the Port Huron team. And uh, that night, uh, Port Huron won 6-5 to five on a third-period slap shot by a nearsighted winger named Dale Dolmich, who was a, who was Detroit property at the time. Um, uh, the, I, don't, I can't remember the second game, but I sure remember the first.
See, I, I love how you throw little details into your storytelling because it makes me want to ask more questions. How nearsighted was he? Well, he he had initials, but they were also part uh, of a profanity that I would not okay. say on the air. He had initials that were created by his prior coach, Ted Garvin, who actually got in, I believe, 11 games in 1973 coaching the Red Wings before he was let go. Uh, but they were they were initials thrown in between his first and last name because he couldn't see very well. And uh, so uh, that that was uh, an interjection that Ted used to yell about how poorly he saw. Oh, okay. um, so anyhow, <laughs> that that uh, the, the the nickname left when Ted did and Bob never used it. But um Anyway, that 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 it, it's easy to remember that he was nearsighted based on that. Okay, I gotcha. Doc Emmerich joining us tonight on Inside Sports. So, look, you you're you eventually started doing NHL games and then national games, and you know you're one of the highest profile people to call any sport in the United States. But I'm wondering when you know you're getting hired by the Devils or you first go to do NBC games. As a broadcaster myself, I find it interesting. Did you apply for those jobs? Did they still want a demo tape? Did somebody approach you and say, oh, we think you're you're pretty good. Come talk to us about the job. Like, how did it go? Um, let's see. In 1973, when I got the first job in Port Huron, I applied in, I think, 1969. And uh, the, uh, the owner of the station in Port Huron kept that in his file for a long time until they had an opening. And then he called and had me come up and talk about it. And I thought he would interview me about my knowledge of hockey. And I sat in his office and he said, so how much is this going to cost me? And I thought, well, what a, what kind of a question is that for a, a job interview? So I fumbled around, said 160 a week, and he slammed his hand on the table and said, that'll be fine. And I thought, oh, gee. Well, anyway, uh, the second job was highly competitive because it was the Flyers farm team, AAA team in Portland, Maine. And the Flyers had just won two back-to-back -back championships. The last ones they won. Uh, and so they were creating their own farm team because they wanted to dictate who was going to get playing time rather than sharing uh, 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 an arrangement in Springfield. And so everybody knew that the Flyers had money. They were going to do it the right way. And there were 40 people that applied for the job. And so you got 15 minutes of time with the Flyers president, Gil Stein, who later was the last president of the National Hockey League before Gary Bettman came in as commissioner. And so I was the fortunate winner of that. And so I got to, um, I got to do the Maine Mariners for three years and the first two they won championships. And the last year they lost out to uh, New Brunswick Hawks, uh, a team that had Daryl Sutter, Bruce Boudreaux, and Ron Wilson as players on it. So we had a lot of future coaches that knocked us out of the playoffs that year. Uh, the Flyers promoted from within, and so I got my first job in the NHL in Philadelphia in 1980 with the Flyers. I did not have to submit any kind of tape for that. Uh, I did not have to submit a tape uh, really thereafter because the Devils were in 83 
And the Flyers bounced me back in 88 to them and then back to the Devils for 18 consecutive years. And because of the proximity to New York, uh, I didn't have to submit any kind of demo to any of the networks that eventually hired me because you were viewed in the New York area on a regular basis if you were covering the Devils. And so that wasn't necessary. So I just got lucky. Well, yeah. This, I'm sure there was a little more than luck along the way, but that's that's pretty cool. Thanks for, for sharing that. Uh, okay, so you referenced earlier coming to Edmonton. So uh, we had some great teams in uh, the 1980s, and we're, we're hoping to build up here a a again. Uh, good old Northlands Coliseum, I guess it would have been for that era. Um, is there a particular game? Well, it doesn't have to be in Edmonton, but a particular Oilers game that is or moment that has stuck with you over the years that you called? Oh, yes. Uh, Weather-wise, the la uh, Memorial Day weekend in the United States uh, is the latter part of May in 1987. They still had Stanley Cup luncheons. It was a tradition that they honored uh, going into the Stanley Cup final. They would have a luncheon the day before game one of the finals. And that was in Edmonton. It was in a hotel banquet hall that overlooked that valley uh, that also has the baseball park that you can see. Mm -hmm. And I can't remember the name of the hotel. But anyway, I'll never forget that here it is in late May and it is snowing to beat the bank. And cars are skidding down the hill trying to get into this hotel driveway. <laughs> it is, uh, and, uh, of all things, and it's May. But I was witnessing, out of the 47 years that I covered hockey, the best team I ever saw was the 87 Oilers. The second best team was the 92 Unified team that had 17 out of the 23 rostered players that eventually came to the NHL. Kasparitis and Kovalev, you know, that, that whole gang because communism had fallen. Viktor Tikhonov was coaching them uh, and they were called the Unified team because they could no longer be called the USSR. And the third best, although this is always a, a debatable point, was in my mind because Ken Holland, now your general manager there, uh, was no longer, as he said, uh, when the uh, when the long one year long lockout was settled. We are no longer creating all star teams here in Detroit at the end of each season at the trade deadline. We are now under a salary cap, and uh, he created a marvelous team in 08 that went to six games and won in Pittsburgh and almost won uh, back to back titles. Uh, with Mike Babcock in uh, 08 and 09. And I think that 08 team was one of the best because Zetterberg and, and Lidstrom and Rafalski and all those guys were in their prime and they were a uh, Datsuk. They were playing just wonderfully. And so that was, uh, you can always debate the third best, but in my mind, there's no debating the, the two best that I ever saw. Incredible stuff. What a thrill to talk to Doc Emmerich. One of my favorite interviews from 2021 here on Inside Sports. We're going through some of the best as we take you towards mid night. Wing 
corner, but Graves behind the net. Gave it to Hamilton, now around to Hughes, who's able to get it to the point, kept in by Nugent Hopkins. Now to Yamamoto, oh, he couldn't get the backhand, he got hauled down. Penalty coming up to the Devils. Here's Drysaddle to Yamamoto, scores! Kyler Yamamoto at the side of the net! Kyler Yamamoto, two goals and an assist this afternoon in a 6-5 overtime loss to the New Jersey Devils. That was the goal that had that huge delay after the fact. So the Devils were getting a penalty, and as the ref's arm went up, Dougie Hamilton swatted at the puck, and it wasn't blown dead. So the Devils said, okay, we want to challenge this, that there, there should have been a whistle. And uh, the referees on the league talked about it and then said, well, wait a minute, you can't actually challenge it because uh, you can only challenge what should have been a stoppage caused by an offensive player, not a defending player, so it counted. And uh, the Oilers had the lead. They couldn't hang on, though, and lost 6-5 in overtime to the Devils. Here's Yamamoto after the game. Oh, it was a good game, um, you know, by both teams. Um, I thought we played a lot better, um, you know, than we did in St. Louis. Or, yeah, St. Louis, so... Um, we got to get tip our hat to that, but um, you know that's a really good team over there. Um, you got to get a lot of credit. Um, you know they, to, they know how to score goals too. Ryan Nugent Hopkins did not finish this one. He left in the third period. We'll see how he's doing for tomorrow's tilt 10:30 faceoff show game at noon. Oilers taking on the New York Islanders. It's the best of 2021 with referee Tim Peel. When we get back, 6:30 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins weekdays at six on 6:30 Chad.